So I have a confession to make. My real motivation for doing Big Mind Light tonight is that I got a new app. (laughs) A new uh, Tibetan Bell app. And uh, I've been, because I travel a lot to lead retreats, I sometimes am not able to carry a big bag of gongs with me. And so to be able to do do it um, cyber style or whatever you want to call it is... It's a treat. So I hope that wasn't too weird. (laughs) Didn't even notice. I have a friend that has the the, uh, Tibetan bells, and and we actually have sessions, and I noticed the difference. Yeah, there is a difference between the real thing, and I I mix the the real one. With my eyes closed, I can tell the difference. Anyway, but I was also delighted to, to share the, to me, what the good good news is, is that... um, in spite of whatever is happening in our lives, the space of our mind is, is always wide open. This is why Rumi so beautifully stated in one of my favorite poems, and this is just a little portion of one of my favorite poems, where he said, and I don't remember the title of the poem, but he said, Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Uh, come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence, flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So this is a message you get over and over in every single wisdom tradition, this movement from the narrow world of our internal dialogue and our stresses and our, con- our contractions, our body tension, all born of, of all kinds of conditions, sometimes of ignorance, sometimes just of just the basic stress of being a human, that uh, even in the midst of, of all of that, uh, it is possible, and the promise of awakening, the promise of the Dharma, is that we can, uh, we can literally, within an, a moment, move to uh, the wider gravitational field of, of, uh, of awareness or the Dharma, which is quite open and, uh, as we often talk about here, quite inclusive. It's there is uh, room for everything, room for all of our feelings, room for our sensations, room for our frustrations. And in fact, the more room you give your frustrations, the more room you give all your feelings, the more room you give the, the different sensations so they start to feel like points of feeling instead of monoliths of misery. The more we can feel that, the more workable everything is. And the other, the other effect of a wider lens is that um, it seems to have the effect of letting in more light, just like a camera. Widen the aperture, more light. And when we have more light, we have more clarity. We're able to see more clearly what's going on. And the more clearly I can see what's going on, the more I can work with it. 
And it's interesting how, I, how just having a little more space in my mind brings balance. It brings much more mercy and compassion when I, when I can bear witness to the pain rather than be co- completely absorbed and lost to it. How much more clarity I'm able to see that whatever it is that's happening is a changing condition. It's not unlike the clouds that pass through the sky, not unlike the the storms that that flow through. Everything is changing. And the more I can understand that in real time, uh, the more workable, whatever the state of my mind is. I don't have to be so busy uh, and create so much tension trying to get rid of things. We see that everything self-liberates, everything. Everything that comes into our mind does not, we don't have to, as we often say, we don't have to help the Dharma along. Uh, help the Dharma move, move things out of our lives. We simply need to create the conditions for things to move freely. And out of that comes all the wholesome qualities of of clarity and and goodness and compassion, discernment, patience, generosity, all of that. So the more space you have, the better. So we often talk about taking space, making space in your lives. Last week... I think I alluded to that, but it is really a moment-to-moment thing. There's always space available. And I say this because we often think that there's no space, often are convinced that we are bound up in, and I hear probably most commonly the the phrase, I'm stuck, or "I'm, I'm, uh, I'm tight in some way, and and often it implies that I have no room to move. I'm, I have no, I'm, I, the path is not open to me. But what we realize when we start to attune to what the real nature of our mind is, we realize the nature of our mind has no, it has no limits. It has no height. It's as bigger than this ceiling. It's just let your mind expand to reach the, the edges of this space, it's vast. It's as vast as the sky. It has no, um, it has no, there's, everything is uh, included within this. And it's a little bit big. I mean, it's huge. <laughs> but don't get caught up in the idea of huge. Just let your mind relax. That's all. And... And that, I, I just find that it's helpful in my own life to remember that I have space. So the next time you're at work and you're, and you're mad at somebody, or you're frustrated, or you, you feel stuck, just turn toward the space of awareness. You'll find that something in our whole nervous system begins to, to settle. Because the space of mind is... Still, it is content. It's immaculate. It does not. Um, it do, it it doesn't suffer. It just knows, and it uh, it knows with a kind of uh, grandmotherly affection. Ah, this is how it is right now, and the more space I have for how it is, the more things just calm down. And you, I think maybe. Very recently, and I always forget who I've said this to, but I, maybe I even said it to somebody this week that I was meeting with, but the old Zen expression, the way to control a cow is to give it a big pasture. So you want to give your mind a big pasture. 
So tonight I had the idea, I'm sure I can come up with some stray thoughts about uh, the Dharma, but I really wanted to hear from you. Uh, really, well, meditative questions, but also really practical questions about the issues of your life, etc., that we can put in a Dharma context. Because the, the Dharma isn't just this sense of removal. It's not just about making space in your mind during a 45-minute practice period. It is right in the middle of it all, right in your office space, right in your, right in your relationships with your uh, friends and family, and how, how close at hand it is. I had this experience this week of going over to a friend's house, and I don't get a chance to do that very often, to have a meal. And we did the ritual chink-chink, you know, hit the glasses of water, no, of whatever we were drinking. But not only did we do the chink-chink, but we actually, with each chink-chink, we looked into each other's eyes. You know, the old Ram Dass thing where he says, are you in there, I'm in here. You know, it's that, somehow that, that connection that gets made. It's coming out of just this little narrow world of chink-chink. I'm often, I realized when I do toast like that, I'm so busy worrying about hitting the glass right. And I often, <laughs> or making sure that I've hit everybody's glass, and it just becomes this kind of meaningless ritual. But then with each person making that contact, just reminded me how the Dharma, that, that sense of connection, that sense of non-separateness is right there in the middle of, of the simplest interaction. And every, any interaction can be, in that way, can be quite beautiful. And I shouldn't have, I thought to myself, I shouldn't be so blown away by this. It should be just a matter of, of regularity to, to have that sense of, of intimacy. And there's so that's something where the Dharma is just an example of where it's right in the middle of our lives. And so I, I'm just curious, any questions, uh, concerns, descriptions, anything you'd like me to speak about, but I'd be really interested in what's alive for you, and not just th theoretical, but something that we can actually uh, all chew on together. So what do you say? Please, would you... Would you like a microphone? Okay, I'm, I, I will do my best to uh, reflect back what you said. Yes, look into each other's eyes. <laughs> Say, uh, for those who didn't hear, she's getting married tomorrow. <laughs> and any reflections on marriage? Yay! Yeah, all, all, life, all life cheers you on for that, that commitment to caring. And I, interestingly enough, I read a, uh, some marriage advice today in some publication. And it was the most important advice that they, this person had heard when they got married. And it was what they called, the person called the 60-40 rule. And this gets back to the spirit of dana. And the 60-40 rule is that you, you know, usually we think of relationships as being equal, 50-50. Everybody does their part. But the 60-40 is that you give 60 and your partner gives 40. And so if you think of giving the 60, that this was really the secret to a successful relationship, is be more, uh, be 
be more of a giver. But that doesn't mean be a self-forgetter. That 40%. That 40% uh, you have to really learn to receive because that is the... Uh, that, that allows someone to feel the joy of giving. So don't, uh, don't be just a giver. Be both a giver and receiver. But 60-40, I liked it. As far as the Dharma goes, that it's a marriage or relationship, any kind of relationship, a meaningful relationship, is, a, uh, is to me, and I will say that my own marriage has been this, is a form of monastic uh, commitment. It is a practice of renunciation. Uh, it is a um, so nuns and monks when they ordain as they they renounce in a very joyful way um, many other options, and they give themselves over to this life of of practice, life of contemplation, a life of community. The same is true in in marriage. You give up all your other options. You close the exit doors. And you, you give yourself over to the fire that this dynamic creates uh, as, as much as you're able to. Now, it's true that sometimes the fire, that due to incompatibility, due to all kinds of things, the fire ends up being too hot. And so you don't want to assume that it, it absolutely um, can never be, that commitment can never be broken. But as much as possible, uh, we... We use it as our practice, and we and it's a, it's really a hot fire, because with every person that you're with, and I'm sure, what's your name in the back? Naomi, Naomi as Naomi can testify, probably, uh, you have seen parts of yourself that you did not know exist existed, and some of it not so pretty. You want to ideally have that which you love most about yourself be that which shines brightest in a relationship. But it's inevitable that your shadow will also emerge. As any committed action will do, it will bring up all the things that oppose uh, light and love. It'll bring all that opposes uh, generosity. It'll bring all the ways that we are self-interested, self-absorbed, bring all the, uh, the old karma, the old dramas, the old traumas from our of families of origin, past relationships. You know, there's, there's a lot of joking about how many people are in the room when, when a relationship. It's, it's, all the, it's all the past relationships, it's all the grandparents, it's all the parents, and it all comes to bear in this, this one little dynamic. So you have to respect that, that it's not always easy. But if you put it in a Dharma context... Um, make it your practice, make practice the hub around which you do your relationship, it can be as liberating as, as anything. Um, and I, yeah, it's, a, it's an endless conversation, but good luck, good luck, and happy for you. Happy to have that opportunity. Anyone else? Please, wow, all, all the comments in the back. Do you know, I, I cannot hear you. It's the, the sound is bouncing off about ten different things. Thank you, Godars. Would you mind using the mic? No. 
Thank you. So I was reading today about how we um, disassociate from our suffering when it's oftentimes when it confronts us on the street when people are like begging or we see somebody. How we disassociate from our suffering. When yeah, it's... and um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how we, in general, could like exercises we could do during the day or ways that we could kind of confront or even just, like, making eye contact with people when they're big. Like, just, like, how in the city we can start to connect a little bit more to... Well, I think you just answered the question. How can we connect more? Is, yeah, to, to within, with some discernment, look into to the eyes of the people that you deal with. And I, the reason I say some discernment is because some, some people it's not safe to, to really make contact with. That's just the way it is. You know, I don't. You can't be too Pollyannish or idealistic about it. But for, as much as possible to to make contact. Um, I think you really answered it in term. And as far as disconnecting, if you know, if you know for a fact that you tend to disassociate or or check out when when you see people who are who are less fortunate or begging or whatever. That is that's your gong. That's the that the gong just went off and said. This is the reminder of my, of my intense desire to face truth, my love of truth. And so that becomes the cause, hopefully, of you the next time really taking it in and feeling what it is that arises for you when you see someone less fortunate. Does it, is it fear? Is it aversion? Is it, so that it becomes, becomes your practice. But by no means should you judge yourself or make a case against yourself or feel, um, feel, I mean, you can feel whatever you feel, but don't, um, don't try not to add an extra arrow of extra judgment to that. It sounds like you feel a little ashamed of that maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So notice that. And if you can, next time turn toward. I think I've spoken before about when I first started to lead you can you can bring. What's your name? Elizabeth. Thanks, Elizabeth. So the, when I first started to uh, lead classes back in the mid '80s, and I'm speaking to somebody who used to come to in the early years tonight. There are several people here who go back a long time to the old the old group, but this is really the the first place that I led a group, and it was a little apartment over in the Castro district. And uh, some friends of mine uh, uh, lived there and opened up their living room. And one evening, someone who, the, one of the first evenings, someone who was quite um, uh, differently abled, disabled. Disabled? Okay. Disabled. Somebody with a disability came walking up the stairs, and my first response was, was to tense up and be afraid. And that it was to face that reaction was so it was so shocking to me that uh, because I had been, you know, waxing in my own mind about my budding compassion, and I realized that my compassion and capacity to really meet pain was about was about a, a dandruff large, and. and it, that became such an inspiration to turn toward, 
toward pain wherever I see it or whatever my projection of pain is on the on that person or that situation. And making that as a uh, resolution has really uh, changed my life. And now there's almost uh, something in me, and it's, this is not uh, boasting, but there's almost something, it's a little scary to say it, there's almost something joyful about joining with, with um, suffering when it comes my way. Uh, and even joining with my own suffering when it comes to the way. There's something really delicious about it. I, it's an odd thing to say, but it's true. Uh, so start where you are, and the way out is in. Turn toward. Easy to talk about, it's an, but it's a practice. We're all works in progress, too. No, Amy. You're dealing with anger. Is that new? No, you're often without anger. I've seen you countless moments free of anger. And anger does arise, maybe frequently. And um, I have a habit that's very non-Buddhist, and I'm trying to break it. Have a habit that's non-Buddhist, and you're trying to break it. Um, excuse me if there's anyone here with Google, but uh, every time I see a Google bus, I stop, and uh, an intention... And who do you do that? Who do you give the one finger salute to? The Google bus. And what do you and what and what may I ask? Do you have against Google buses and Google employees? And, and the other thing is, I live in a little poverty, and I see people half my age throwing money around like. So you see, see people with a lot of resources when you live below poverty. Yeah. Yes, it's hard to it's hard to bear the inequity in in the, our resource base. <laughs> it conflicts conflicts with your <laughs> love and light. <laughs> Uh-huh. 
So it really gets pretty dark. Yeah. 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 And so there, I have so a. F- Why don't you go and live in the marina where you belong? Be careful about your one-finger salute. You might end up on YouTube. Well, no, I'm, I actually, my heart hurts hearing you describe this. And I don't, it doesn't hurt because I judge you, but, but I know how much pain that comes from. And, and I would, you know, I would want for you to, to embrace, to turn, to take your attention away from the object of your aversion and turn it toward the pain that you're feeling. And bring and give all the love and care that you can. Not love like this, but but really get this is this is dukkha. This is so painful for me. And you know the, the objects. You know the objects of dukkha are endless. Google is just a poster child for. You know that. The what? The inequity is becoming greater. However, the, the ill will, if the ill will grows with the inequity, then there's no solution. The only solution is, is, is maybe activism, but it's got to be with love. It's got to be, it can't be with ill will, otherwise you're just, you're just cultivating ill will. So let's see who can win, inequity or ill will. That's, it's, not a very wonder, it's not a very interesting competition, actually. Yeah, so... But I feel the ill will Well, that's why I said that you want to embrace your pain with, with compassion and loving kindness because it has nothing to do with Google. No, I, I know that. You know that, and so, that you want to, so that's where the attention has to be. Not, not making a case against yourself. That's just, that's just adding an extra arrow to your pain. You want to add... You want to add kindness to yourself, say, and find other ways of soothing yourself rather than dumping the aversion on, on Google. Uh, you know, I had a friend who, 24-year-old granddaughter did something weird. She was told to walk on the street because four people were with rats and one had a dog, and, you know? No, I won't move my dog. You have to walk around the dog. And put my friend has said in speech that I do it says I had to twice to move your dog. Uh, but now I won't be nice. Move the foot ex- yeah. dog and I'll all walk through the dog. So I, I think it's fine to be to be fierce when in advocating for the truth, but fierce does not have to be angry. So if it's anger, you're hurting yourself and others, and then and that doesn't that doesn't between fierce and anger. It's just advocating for what's what's 
what you know to be right, but without, without hatred. It just means you don't hate the person because they're doing it. You, it's like hating, it's like not liking, disliking the action, but not the person. And what happens when we, when we, when we uh, address the, the person with ill will, it, it becomes, a, it lands, as, it actually generates more contraction and more hatred and it just builds on itself. Well, yes, there is, but the, but the, I do to the best of my ability because I have, I get triggered very easily by unconscious politicians, uh, public um, police, etc., etc. I try to the best of my ability to remember every moment that. Uh, the line from the Dhammapada, hatred never ceases by hatred, by love alone. And I'm going to just uh, just keep hammering at it, fake it until I make it, and just keep, as to the best of my ability, putting out kindness. Kill somebody with kindness. And you'll feel so much better afterwards. You don't feel better after you've got, you may feel better for a moment after you've dumped on someone, but you'll feel a lot better if you do it. With kindness. You don't have to love it. You just don't want to add to it. You don't want to add to it. And the question was: that What happens if they dump on you first? Hatred never ceases by hatred. This is the whole nature of war. It just keeps being perpetuated because everybody takes their position. You did it first, I did it first, and it's endless. You, that's samsara. That's the loop. That's the, that's the impossible, um, that's the endless wandering. Like I said, fierce, compassion, ad, self-advocacy, ad, advocacy for others, but, but weeding out when it's when it's driven, when the engine behind it is ill will, and there, and you can—that's your practice. I can't really describe that. You have to feel that the difference. Thank you. Please, Tanya. You want to, I said, yeah, if it's possible to use your relationship to practice the Dharma. And that means even if your partner's not using the Dharma to practice, or using the relationship to practice the Dharma. That, that the relationship, because it presents all kinds of material, is a fertile ground for practice. And ideally, you want two people who are doing, the, who are doing that together. That's not always the case, and, and that's often... It often presents real problems of compatibility. However, there are many couples that where one person's using their relationship at least partly as practice and one isn't. So that's what I meant. So it just means remembering all the tenets of practicing Yeah, remembering all the tenets. It's using it, using the eightfold path, basically. Wise effort, uh, 
uh, wise, wise speech, wise action, you know, wise uh, keeping the precepts, not being respectful of that person's life, and, and being, uh, and not, uh, when I think of not stealing, really being respectful of their space and their property and, you know, all of that. It, there's just some way of, of respect. And then making sure that my connection, my sensual connection with that person is is imbued with caring. It's not just, I better stop right there. I, my mind, my my mind went to wham bam. You know, just get it over with. So you really want to you want to be wise and caring in your sensual relationships. You all of that is keeping the precepts and staying present with the person, using it as a mindfulness practice, uh, letting your be, becoming so uh, interested, connected that uh, you don't want to be somewhere else. And there are often couples, turn, especially when they've been together a long time, end up like ships passing in the night. And some of that's inevitable. Everybody has their own individual orbit, but sometimes it takes, a, it takes wise attention. It takes wise effort and wise concentration. And then to have the wisdom always that your well-being, uh, that, that your partner was not made in your image, and so your well-being can't be dependent on completely dependent on how they show up. Of course, it's somewhat dependent, but it can't be so dependent that we that that a lot of relationship is honoring a person's autonomy and individuality and and embracing it. Uh, so the tendency so much with couples is try to trying to remake partners in their own image. And, uh, and it's so invasive, and it's so much the cause of, of frustration for the person who's trying to change the other person, uh, feeling unseen and unsupported and unloved by the person who's, who's receiving it. And it goes back and forth. So those kinds of things make it a very fierce practice, and yet fun if you have two people who are conscious. Please. Everything arising and passing that we have no control over. So rather than opening up to the underlying, uh, to the fact that everything is constantly changing for you produces an underlying. There's a it produces some anxiety. Anyone else ever experienced that? And how to deal with that anxiety, and how to deal with the fact that everything is is uh, in a constant state of flux and out of control. Uh, well, Dharma practice invites us to develop the, the steadiness of mind, the balance of mind, to sit right in the middle of it. And to be, and to, as I think you even used the word witness, to bear witness to the fact of it, to the living reality of change. 
being with the living reality of change and impermanence actually brings joy to the heart. Bringing with the idea, being with the idea of change and things being out of control brings anxiety. So usually if we're in a state of anxiety about it, we're in some, often, we're in some way with the idea of it. We're caught in the story of it. But if you're actually just with things as they're unfolding, there is, um, there's often a greater sense of balance and a greater sense of ease that goes with that. You, it's as though you, you enter the stream instead of uh, think about it. And when you enter the stream and let go, you just you flow along. So it's easy to talk about. It's another thing to actually sit in the middle of it. So right now, let go of the idea of everything changing and out of control. We know that it, that's how things are. But right now, in the middle of that truth, Is there a problem? Right now. It's much more workable when we're in real time. I think we have to stop for the evening. I know there was another hand, but I appreciate everyone's comments, questions. Uh, We're all human. We're all pissed off, we're all, we're all finding ways of being with change, and so just hope in my responses that didn't imply that you should somehow be reacting, shouldn't be dealing with what you are, reacting the way you are. We start where we are, and we do the best we can. But again, uh, just leave you with the, the, the practice that hatred Uh, never ceases by hatred, by love alone. So this is what the Buddha suggested for all of us so-called wise people. He said, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, 
whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from dependency on sense desires, is not born again into this world of suffering. So may all beings be free of ill will. May all beings grow in loving kindness. May all beings live with ease. And may our practice today and every day, from the moment we wake up till the moment we go to bed, may our practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all, including ourselves. Thank you. So good luck. (laughs) Thanks for your practice. Thanks for your generosity. See you next Tuesday. Hopefully. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.